0: You may notice in your bulletin that the title of this sermon is Back to Bethlehem, H-A-M. That is a typo. (laughs) Our spell checker doesn't read the Bible very much. Uh, This is not a sermon about the abolition of the dietary laws. Uh, This is a uh, sermon about something that happened a long, long time ago in the city of Bethlehem. But not what you think. I'd like you to turn to the book of Ruth, if you will. Uh, Ruth is a little book that's uh, tucked in there between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. Um, It's a wonderful, wonderful little book. There are a number of perspectives that uh, you can take on this book. One is to see it as uh, just very fine literature. Not only Christians and Jews, but also uh, secular scholars look at this book and they're astonished at the subtleties of it, the uh, the great storytelling devices, the scheme. It's the way the story is put together. Very compelling, wonderful, wonderful story to read. It can also be looked at as a, a wonderful love story, the story of uh Ruth and Boaz Romance, How One Woman Found Happiness in the Arms of Her Second Husband, I Suppose, that were being written today. It's also a, a story about friendship, the kind of friendship that the book of Proverbs describes. Friendship is not a matter of, of uh, others befriending you. It's, uh, the issue is, who will we befriend? And there's this wonderful story of, of Ruth and her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, And the uh, oath of loyalty and fealty and commitment, love that they swore to uh, one another. But I want to take a different approach to this book this morning. Uh, I think this is a book about Naomi. I think she's the centerpiece. She's the primary character of the book. She's the one with whom the story begins. And she's the one uh, with whom it concludes Her story brackets the entire book of of Ruth. Now, uh, let me say something about the setting of this book, because it's very important that you understand historically where it belongs. The first verse tells us that the events that are described in this book took place during the period of the judges. Now, we know what life was like during that time. We've been studying the book of Judges, idolatry and, uh, ...adultery and rampant, blatant homosexuality... And ...gang rape and violence and crime and and sin and skullduggery... ...and it just goes on and on and on. And uh, it was an awful, terrible time. Well, the story of Ruth is set in that historical period. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Donner, Donald Campbell... I th- ...Campbell, I think he was the first to use this expression describes the book of Ruth and describes Ruth herself as a lovely lily in the midst of a stagnant pond. Wonderful description, I think, of, of her character in the midst of a society that's uh, running amuck. Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes, is the way uh, the text puts it. N- not just immorality that was rife, but amorality. No standards. Everyone made up their own rules. The only rule was no rules. And here in the middle of this terrible uh, scene is this wonderful person, Ruth, and Naomi, and the others of sterling character that are described uh, in the book. Now, the characters uh, really are four. There are a number of incidental characters, but the main character is Naomi, as I said. We'll talk more about her in a moment. Uh, the second most important person is Ruth, and then uh, Boaz, and then uh, uh uh, kind of a no-good relative, the sort of relative that we all have, who shows up every once in a while and, and uh, makes things very difficult for us. Uh, scholars have long noted that this book is one of the first dialect stories that we know anything about. It's like our Uncle Remus stories, in which the animals all have different voices and different dialects to distinguish them. It's interesting in looking at the dialogues, between Boaz and Ruth, uh, because you can discern so much about the character of each, the kind of personalities that they were. This this book is just rich in images. Uh, Boaz, for example, when he speaks, uses a kind of colloquial, down-home, off-shucks, just-folks dialect. Uh, Ruth speaks with almost classic, almost in terms of classical Hebrews, the way the grammarians describe her, very much upscale. Um, I, I, I get the impression that she's sort of like the new school marm that comes to town, whereas Boaz comes across as a kind of countryfied, shuffling, slow-moving, easygoing sort of a fella. Um, somewhat tough, but tender. Interestingly enough, he's described in here as a, a man of courage, a warrior. It's the same term it's used of Gideon. Remember when Gideon was threshing out the wheat in the wine press, and angel appeared and addressed uh, him as a mighty warrior. It's that term. Same term is used of Samson. It means a, a strong, courageous, uh, warrior type, a knight, uh, tough. But he's also very tender. Very gentle, very compassionate, very concerned. In my mind, he's sort of the complete man, tough and tender. Not afraid to let his emotions show. He's, he's concerned, compassionate, loving, tender person. I, I like to do this. In my mind, I picture him as sort of like uh, an early day John Wayne. Uh, you know, he comes ambling into town with his boots and Levi's and his sheepskin jacket and his big Stetson and his... Guns tied down low, you know, and that, that's Boaz. Uh, kind of a drawly, slow moving guy. Um, Ruth is much more upscale, uptown, classy lady, speaks, um, as I say, like a school marm. That's sort of the way I envision him. Now, uh, let's take a look at the story. I I don't have time to read the whole book. It's uh, four chapters long. I just want to tell you the story and draw your attention to a couple of of incidents that happened. And I want us mostly to focus on Naomi because, as I say, she is the principal character, I believe, in the book. The book starts out with uh, one tragedy after another. Uh, Things happen to Naomi like bricks tumbling out of the back of a dump truck. Boom, 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 boom. One thing after another. She was married to a who was one of the aristocracy of Bethlehem. Came from the old money. The old name. Uh, wealthy, affluent man. There was a famine. He lost everything. Went bankrupt. Had to leave. Go to, go to Moab. Um... You know, it's always hard to move to another locality. They didn't move very far away. It's about as far as from here to Jordan Valley. But another culture, another nation, another language had to adjust to a new setting. You know, you have to find a pediatrician. You have to find a drugstore. You know, have to find your way around town. It's always hard to make that move, make new friends and all. And it's particularly hard in a new culture. A lot of culture shock. and It's difficult to get over those, those you know, the kind of the initial fear that you have when you move into a new community. That was tragedy number two, they had to relocate. Tragedy number three is her husband uh, died. We, we don't know what happened, heart attack. Or, uh, in those violent days, perhaps someone murdered him, but he died. She was a single parent with his two young boys, Maclon and Killian. And then to the compound matters, her boys got involved in, in the culture of that country, Now, the Moabites were distant relatives of of the Israelites. They were descended from Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. But uh, the descent was the result of an an incestuous relationship with Lot's daughter. And from that time on, there was something something radically wrong with this whole culture, something very kinky, something, something very wrong with them sexually. In fact, in the one contact that Israel had with them, they not only would not permit the Israelites to pass through their territory, even though they were relatives, they seduced the Israelites into, into sexual sin. That's why Moses said, don't have anything to do with them. Just leave them alone. It's decadent, corrupt society. Well, Maclon and Kilion, the two sons of, of Ruth, were involved in this culture, and they began to party and to drink too much, and pretty soon they were just caught up in this lifestyle and, and uh, that's really hard if you're a single parent and you don't have a husband there to help and, and you're having to take care of two grown boys and everything's going sour. It's extremely, extremely hard. And then they began to bring these uh, young uh, ladies home. And uh, they married them. Macklon married Ruth. Killian married Orpah. That's not Orpah Winfrey. That's uh, <laughs> someone else. Brought them home, and huh, you think, what, what more could happen? What well, it happened. Macklin and killian died, and Naomi was stuck with these two daughters-in-law. And she said, I'm out of here. She got news that things were better back in Bethlehem, and so she decided to go home. So she says to her two daughters, y'all can do whatever you want to, but I'm going home. One of them stayed, uh, Orpah stayed. She was an idolatress. She worshipped Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. Something had happened to Ruth's heart. We don't know whether Ruth became a believer through her husband or through Naomi or something she saw in the family, some spark of faith that ignited uh, uh, a warmth in her own heart for, for the Lord. But she had become a believer, and, and, and she went back with Naomi. You have this wonderful uh, oath that she swore to Naomi in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me thus, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. We're accustomed to hearing those words in wedding ceremonies, but they fit first in this uh, friendship. Between a, a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And uh, Ruth uh, went back to Bethlehem with uh, with Naomi. Verse 19. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? The men were all out in the fields working. Naomi was known because she was a member of the aristocracy in Bethlehem. Before Everybody knew Naomi. is so when she comes back to town, the women all... Spend some time with her. and They said, can this be Naomi? She must have looked haggard, drawn, and old for years. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me, call me Mara. Naomi's name in Hebrew, Naomi means uh, my pleasant one. Mara means bitter. It's a play on words as though we would say, uh, call me Mara because I've been marred. She says, don't call me uh, don't call me pleasant. Nothing pleasant about my life. I've had nothing but grief and tragedy. Don't call me bitter. There's a there's a real uh, hardness here toward God that it's set in. A bitterness and an anger toward God. This is very often what happens when people feel they've been unjustly treated. They feel that they've done the very best that they can. And, and the Almighty has not been fair with it. Life's not fair. Not fair. It's always hard to answer that that uh, uh, that problem, because uh, there really aren 't any good answers, life is unfair, and it does sometimes seem that the hand of of the Lord is against us, and people do get bitter they do get angry at God they're inclined to blame him for their troubles, but as we 'll see that doesn't that doesn't put God off he doesn't turn his back on us when we get mad at him he doesn't get mad at us when we get mad at him he sets out to Set things right, as we'll see. Now, there's an interesting statement that Naomi uh, makes back in verse uh, uh, verse uh, 12. When she addresses her daughters and encourages them to go home, she says, Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And that statement seems apropos of nothing. What does uh, being too old to have another husband have to do with, uh, with Ruth going back home? Well, let me explain. In the ancient world, in almost all of the Semitic cultures in the ancient Near East and in Israel, there was a custom that uh, scholars describe as leverate marriage. And it has nothing to do with Levi or, or, Le- or the Levites. The word comes from a Latin word that means brother. Now, this is this was the custom. If um, if a man dies, his brother was expected to marry his widow, if it were possible. His brother was expected to marry his widow and to raise up seed in the name of his brother. In other words, the inheritance would continue to pass through the brother's line. The brother who married the widow wouldn't get any benefit from that except he'd have the family and the children and the joy of the family. But the inheritance would pass on to the son. that was to preserve the name of of the one that that had died. Which meant that if you lived back then and uh, your older brother got interested in some young lady, you would probably want to take her out to lunch and check her out. (laughs) Because the chances are, in that day and age, when the lifespan was so short, <laughs> you would be married to her before long. So you'd want to be sure this is the kind of woman that you would want to marry. Her. Safeguard here. But that's what the Leverate marriage is. See what she's saying? She said, ah, I'm too old to have a husband, have a child, and for him to grow up and marry you. So your hope is not with me. And after all, the the Lord's hand is against me. Anyway, you don't want to be with me. You go back home. Ruth was willing to take her chances with a God whose hand seemed to be against her mother-in-law. And she was willing to go back where there seemed to be no hope that she would ever marry. Israelites were prohibited from marrying Moabites. That was the law. Grace, as we'll see, prevailed. But the law prohibited intermarriage with the Moabites, so she really was facing a hopeless situation. She probably would be unmarried to the end of her days, but she was willing to side with the God of, uh, of Israel. Now, um, we're told in chapter 2 that, that Naomi had an acquaintance uh, of her husband. Unfortunately, the text my text says relative. The word just means uh, a friend or an acquaintance. Because at this point, we're not told the whole story. The way the NIV translates his first verse gives the impression that the cat's the cats out of the bag here in the beginning. But uh, that's not true. We, we don't know that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. See, that would make him a near kinsman and thus a redeemer. Because in the law, if the brother couldn't redeem the widow, then someone else who was a near relative could. And so here, the, 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 the storyteller very cleverly Hides the fact that this person Boaz, that we're going to meet in a moment, was a, actually a relative. So I just just had a friend. That's all, an acquaintance. And uh, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, "Let me go to the fields and pick over the left over grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor." So one of the problems that Ruth had was to find a job. I had to support uh, the family. And uh, the, one of the, the uh, uh, options of poor people in those days was to glean in the fields. By Israelite law, farmers were prohibited from cleaning out the corners of their fields. They had to leave the grain standing in the corners, and they had to actually leave a bit of grain lying about so that the poor could gather them up. That was just one of the uh, compassionate, humane elements of, of the law of Israel, take care of the poor, orphans widows and needy people. So she says, I'm going to go look for a field where I can clean. And the text says she chanced to chance upon the field of this uh, friend of a who happened to be a, a, a near uh, kinsman, as, as we know, because we read the, the end of the story. Naomi said, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean the fields behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. They called back. Here's a man and a businessman who knew how to integrate his faith and his work. And again, remember the, the, the moral a climate of that age when people generally didn't give God the time of day here was a man that took his faith very very seriously and he starts looking around his field seeing how things are going and he notices this young woman she's probably in her late 20s early 30s by this time she's out there gleaning and he surmises that she's one of the servants that he'd hired but he can't recall hiring her and so he says who is she? and they say well this is Ruth the Moabitess Oh, yes, boy says, I know about her. She's the one, she's the talk of the town. Everybody is impressed by how much she loves her, her mother-in-law and her integrity and the vitality of of her faith and her life. And so he goes over to get acquainted and chat with her. He's much older than, than she. And, and uh, they begin to talk and he Becomes concerned about her well-being. And uh, he says, well, instead of gleaning in the corners of the field, why don't you follow the women? And in those days, the men went through first and they cut the grain. They'd use these big scythes to cut them, hand size, And uh, then the, the women would follow and they'd gather up the uh, the stalks and they'd bind them into shocks. And uh, Ruth is invited to work with these women so that she wouldn't have to just work in, on picked over land. She could actually gather up the shocks that the men were cutting down, and she could bind them and take them home. Furthermore, Boaz says, if you want to drink water, we'll take care of that. You don't have to haul your own water, and you can eat with with the women over there. And if any of these guys give you trouble, you just let me know. And then he goes over to where the men are, and remember again, the moral climate, and how easily she could have been molested in that field. And uh, and Boaz ambles over and hitches up his gun belt and says... uh, uh, to the men that were working the field, anybody mess with that woman, you have to answer to me. And uh, so she's, she's safe to, to work. And as she's leaving, he gathers up some more grain and gives it to her and blesses her and sends her back home. And when she gets home, Naomi says, Blessed be Yahweh. If somebody's looking after us. That, then, is your kinsman redeemer. He's a relative. So Naomi, being the good Jewish uh, matchmaker that she was, said to uh, Naomi, chapter 3, verse 1, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you? Uh, Where you will be well provided for is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. You know the story. Uh, in those days, these threshing floors were usually uh, on top of a hill or in, on an artificially raised platform—a stone platform. Cut the grain, and they'd throw the stalks and bind them, and throw them on the on the floor the threshing floor. And then either oxen or, or donkeys or sometimes human feet would tread them out, break up the stalks, break the grain loose from the uh, from the chaff, and then they would toss. They'd wait till about four o'clock in the afternoon when. The wind would rise in that part of the country. The wind blows from about four or five o'clock in the afternoon till sunset. They toss the grain in the air and blow the chaff away, and that's the way they collected the grain. And uh, after it's all over, they had a big meal. It's like uh, if you've ever if you've lived on a farm, you know what harvest days are like and the big table that's spread. And and, uh, Boaz ate, drank to his heart's content, and as the text puts it, he was in very good spirits. (laughs) And uh, he went over to. uh, to go to sleep right, to a corner of the threshing floor. Rolled out his little sleeping pad and covered himself with his cape. In those days, in sleeping bags, of course, they wore a, a heavy cape in cold weather. And then at night, if they were sleeping out in the open, they would cover themselves with that cape. That's why, by the way, in the, in the law, Israelites were prohibited from keeping a man's cape as a pledge in debt uh, overnight, he had to return it to him at night. It's another hu- humane consideration in the law because the man, the man was cold and he needed his cape. So uh, Boaz uh, uh, stretches out on this threshing floor, covers himself with a, cake, a cape, and he's uh, sawing logs quickly. And uh, Ruth makes her way over to where he's sleeping. And she picks up the end of his cape, what the Hebrew calls the wings of his cape. And she slides under. Now she is not propositioning him. She is proposing. Because you see in that culture, and it still continues today in a Jewish wedding, the groom covers the bride with a cape. It's a symbol of putting her under his protection. And uh, the wings of the cape cape, uh, actually symbolize... Uh, hiding that person under your wings in, the, in that sense. Uh, home ought to be a place of protection. and It's a safe place to live. So you cover it up. And I understand, I, I talked to some Jewish friends of mine this week, and I understand that's still the custom in Jewish weddings, they're using the cape in that manner to symbolize bringing a person into a loving relationship with you. Well, that's all she was doing. She In getting under his wings, she was saying, you are my near kinsman, and perhaps he'd already figured it out by this point, at this point, and, uh, I want you to take me under your, under your wing. Uh, interesting fellow, this, uh, Boaz, particularly when you know who his mother was. Do you know who his mother was? Rahab, the harlot, ex-harlot. Converted to faith in God. God had done a work in her heart, certainly changed her sexual orientations, and uh, that had been passed on to him. Because what a what an easy uh, way to uh, to uh, to use this person, to exploit this offer that she made. And again, remember the moral sexual climate of that day. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, there were no sexual standards or mores, and he could have exploited her, but he didn't. Uh, the text says. My text says that something startled the man. The the Hebrew text is even more vivid. He just kind of did a little whirl. It scared the living daylights out of him. He didn't know what was happening. And he looked down at his feet and he, he discovered a woman lying there. And he says, who are you? She says, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. You see, in in Jewish law, if there was no brother to redeem, then another relative, a near relative, could redeem. And what she's doing is just saying again what I think Boaz already knew, that he was a near kinsman and could redeem her. Um, Boaz responds in verse 10, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, in that you have not run after the younger men pardon me, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you're a woman of noble character. Actually, it's the same term that's used of Boaz in a little different sense, a woman of, of moral courage. Uh, although it is true that I'm near of kin, there's a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. He was probably dreading that exposure, but he's very straightforward and, and honest. He tells her there's... There's someone uh, that's nearer than I. I think he had already fallen for this, uh, this young woman. So he says to her, stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, I vow that as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. And so he had her lie there until uh, just before daybreak, and then he loaded up a bunch of grain, put it on her back, 88 pounds worth of grain, which she lugged off to her uh, mother-in-law. And that was enough to sustain them for a while while they worked out the legal uh, implications of this uh, redemption. And that's all described for us in the first part of chapter 4. If you visit Israel uh, and you go to one of the sites that's been excavated there, and in particular those sites where they found the walls and the uh, main gate of the city, there's always a little alcove off to the right or the left of the gate with a a, uh, stone bench built into the walls. And that's where the elders met. Uh, when there was a legal decision that needed to be made, they didn't have a judge as such. They would call together ten elders. That constituted a quorum. And they would gather in this little alcove and they would make uh, decisions. And so uh, Boaz went up to the town gate, chapter 4, and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, this is the younger man who was the near relative to Ruth. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. And the text is much more friendly to this fellow than Boaz was. Basically, what he said was, Hey, you, uh, so-and-so. He says, Come here, sit down. Uh, and I think this fellow was a ne'er-do-well. Uh, certainly comes across that way as the story unfolds. Sit down. So he went over and sat down. And, and the, the elders heard, heard the story. They heard what had happened. And uh, Boaz says, uh, Naomi who has come back from Moab is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother, Elimelech I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it and the man says, of course I'll buy it it gives me an opportunity to extend my holdings Boaz says, oh, forgot to mention the day you buy the the land from Naomi you also get Ruth, the Moabitess he says, just to make that point you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. In other words, any son that you have with Ruth will receive the property. You won't get anything out of this. It's just a matter of obedience to God's will, that's all. But uh, this man uh, turns his back on the opportunity and says, I, I, I can't redeem the land. It would endanger my own estate. And uh, he takes off his shoe and hands it to uh, hands it to Boaz, which in those days was a way, I think, of saying, you can walk on my property. Here's my shoe, and in effect, uh, my property is your property. Now you have the right to put your foot on this piece of land. You also uh, acquire Ruth, and Boaz announces to the elders today, uh, you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Macalon. I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Macalon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records today, your witnesses. Then the elders and all those in the gate said, We're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Rachel and Leah were the two uh, legitimate wives of Jacob who um, uh, were the mothers of the majority of the tribes, and from which the Bethlehemites King who made up this uh, this gathering. An interesting word here, offspring, offspring. Your seed, your seed. May this woman's seed be like that of Leah and Rachel. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, he mentions uh, Perez here because it was through Perez that the that most of the Bethlehemites were descended. Now, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Near uh, kinsman who did not redeem, and Boaz, who was the more distant relative, did. That's the kinsman redeemer. No? Mm-mm. It wasn't Boaz. This particular test, uh, text obscures the fact that That this is a reference to the child who is to be born. Interesting twist. All along we've assumed that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. And now it's the son who is born to Ruth. Look at the passage. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you. Ruth? No, Naomi. Naomi. Without a, a relative to redeem. Redeem from what? Redeem from your unhappiness. Redeem from your despair, redeemed from your hopelessness. May he become famous throughout Israel. That is the son, the child. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And the pronoun very clearly refers back to the kinsman redeemer. So here we're given a glimpse of the fact that it's the son that was born to Boaz and Ruth who would be Naomi's redeemer redeem her from the terrible despair and bitterness of her life and uh, so then Naomi played the good granny she took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him she nurtured him as though he were her own and in effect he was the women living there said Naomi has a son she has a son See, the story is not about how one woman found romance and happiness in the arms of her second husband. The story is how one woman found uh, happiness by holding a child in her arms. That's what the story is about. It's about the son that God gave to Naomi to replace the losses and to redeem her from her bitterness. And uh, they named him Obed, the word means uh, servant, because he was a servant to Naomi. He ministered to her needs. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez, and that line is is, uh, traced through Hezron and Ram and Amminadab and Nachshon and Salmon, who was the husband of uh, Rahab, and Boaz and Obed and Jesse and David. And we say, now what's this genealogy here for? Well, we'll see in a moment. Now, uh, I want you first of all to understand the historical setting. Here in the midst of all of this moral squalor and personal disaster, a child is born that Naomi takes to her heart. And this becomes her relative. Say, it's her grandchild who redeems her. She finds redemption through this son. Redemption from... The uh, the plight that she experienced earlier. Now, I I believe this isn't all that we learn from this passage. I from this book. I think this book is strongly messianic. C. S. Lewis long ago pointed out that that the all the Old Testament rustles with the rumor of hope that someone is coming. Begins with the seed. We've talked about that uh, that truth a number of times, and I've often visualized it for you as a little box with a seed in it. That uh, when the human race uh, was plunged into sin, God gave Eve a little box with a seed in it. And he said, someday this seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. And she carried that seed. She passed it on to the next generation. The next generation passed it on. And it was passed on and on and on. Time marched on. And you come to the time of uh, Ruth. And the seed was passed on to her. And then the seed was passed on to uh, the next generation. And the next generation Jesse, David, um, Solomon, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, so forth. Time marched on until you come to Jesus, and then the box was open. You see, and the seed matured, and it became the Son, who is our kinsman Redeemer. This is one of these little hints, you see, before it ever happened. That it was going to happen. Now, now let me show you something interesting. We have two minutes and I, I just don't want you to miss the implications of this passage. First of all, the child, the son, is called a kinsman redeemer. It's very important. Paul says, in him, that is in Christ. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. Uh, furthermore, we're told that um, he would become very famous. Who ever heard of Obed? You ever heard that name before? He's not famous in Israel. There must be someone else that he has in mind. He will renew your life, literally restore your soul. It is exactly the same phrase that you find in Psalm 23. He, the good shepherd, restores my soul. Uh, he's said to be the one who will sustain you in your old, old age, give you, give you hope as you age. And uh, then there is this uh, odd genealogy growing out of the reference to the seed, which traces the line as far as this author could trace it, because he, he must have lived into the time of David. We don't know exactly who this was. could have been Samuel who uh, penned these, uh, this book. But he traces it as far as he can. But then uh, the other books, uh, Chronicles, picks up the genealogy and traces it on through as far as Chronicles can trace it on into about the 4th century B.C., early 4th century B.C. And then the book of Matthew picks up the the genealogy and traces it on down to Christ. So you have these little intimations, these little hints that something else is going on. Now, if I were, I was thinking uh, yesterday that if I were going to try to stage this or produce a television program or a movie representation of this or, or some medium that would try to get across uh, what I think this book is saying. I would uh, I'd show Naomi with the child, you know the grandmother holding her, her grandson, finding in him the redemption from hopelessness that she longed for. And then superimposed on her would be a, a picture of Mary looking down at Jesus and a sword piercing her heart. When she realized that this one would die, and then I, I, I would see the the Lord as a young man growing up and becoming aware of the suffering in this world. You see, he, when he became a man, he was man enough to take the same medicine that that we we have to take. He suffered just as we suffer, and uh, he saw the hurt and the pain and the anguish and the disappointment and the bitterness. Of people around him. He, he understood. As Isaiah puts it. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. you see. But he did something about it. So he went to the cross. And he was our kinsman redeemer. He was one of us. Related to us. As Michael Card uh, says in one of his songs. So much unlike any man. But yet so much like me. Okay. My kinsman Redeemer. Now, that's why I think the book of Ruth is, is messianic. I, I, I think there's so much here for us to ponder. The, the, the one thought that came to me with such, a, such strength uh, this last week as I looked at this passage is that phrase, his name will be famous. I think this is what began to tip me off that something else is going on here. Because as I, as I say, whoever heard of Obit? There has to be something more here. And I thought of Isaiah's, uh, Isaiah's words. His name shall be called Wonderful. You see. That takes all the dreariness and the drabness and the emptiness out of our life. He's Wonderful. Uh, His name shall be called Counselor. That, that takes the hard decisions away from us. We can trust him. To let us know what we should do and how we should do what we're, what we're called to do. He is mighty, he is the mighty God. See, that takes away from me the demands of life, the pressures that are upon me. Because he is the almighty creator of the universe who is for me. His hand is not against me. His hand is upon me. And he's the everlasting father that covers all dimensions of life. Past, present, and future. And he's the Prince of Peace. That's the answer to all the disturbances of life, the things that ruffle us and upset us and rob us of our of our peace. He's the Prince of, of Peace. Now, uh, we're going into the Christmas season. And it uh, strikes me that uh, the very thing that we ought to be centering on is missing from most of our celebrations. Uh Carolyn and I were at the mall yesterday, being trampled by all the other people that were there. I know some of you were there. I kept running into you. I think some of you stepped on me as you went by. Um, You know, it's odd. Someone came up after the first service and said, You know, it, uh, it occurred to me, walking through the mall, that there's absolutely nothing there that I need. I mean, there's no grocery store, there's no drug store, nothing to supply the necessities of life. It's all the uh, stuff we don't really need. I never thought of That's an interesting insight. I never thought of that before. What struck me is no crash, no symbols of Christ. I, c- I can't think of a single uh, reference or symbol of what makes Christianity or makes Christmas Christmas. It's just not there. We've totally... the. Dr. Seuss was right, the Grinch has stolen Christmas. We've, we've totally secularized Christmas. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, I was reading this last week about uh, C.S. Lewis, one of his letters to Malcolm. He was commenting on a woman that was sitting in front of him in a London tram. And as they passed, uh, it was Christmas time, and as they passed the store window... She saw a crash, and she turned nativity scene, and she turned to the uh, person who was sitting next to her, and she said, "That's just like Christians dragging religion into everything." (laughs) And I thought, how ironic, how ironic! Always having to drag Christ into into Christmas, but it's something we have to do because he's our kinsman redeemer. All this other stuff is going on; tends to distract us, and Lots of disappointments, a lot of emptiness in life. Many of you, uh, you've had a hard time, very hard time. You've suffered a lot. You've lost a lot. And uh, I know, you you come and we talk. and I don't have any easy, I used to have lots of answers to why there's so much injustice in the world. I don't have any answers anymore. I just say, well, life is hard. It is, it's hard. Very unfriendly uh, world out there in which we live. But I know one thing, God's good. He's good. And he's in control. And he's going to set things right. And it all is a matter of centering on the sun. When we do that, we can handle anything. I don't know how many of you saw the picture of Phil Simms in the, in the recent Sports Illustrated. I laughed out loud. You know, the, the Giants lost uh, to the Eagles last weekend, which uh, marred their perfect season. And... Uh, as Sims was leaving a Veteran Stadium, he was booed and harassed by the Eagle fans. There's a great picture of him standing there with a big smile on his face going like that. And I thought, yeah, it's really the way we ought to respond and when people boo us and when the world comes down on us and when we lose and we don't have a perfect season, and we don't, you know, we fail. Just to say, it's all right. It's all right. I've got a kinsman redeemer. He's on my side. He's for me. Let's pray. Father, when we face into these uh, very difficult times in our lives, help us to realize again that that this is not what the world is made of, our world is made of. No matter what tragedy strikes us, though it hurts and we suffer and we sometimes weep and we sometimes feel as though there's no hope, but we know down in our heart that there is hope. You've given us one like us. One of our relatives, a member of of our race, who has come to redeem us. And help us to to center on him in these times when it's so easy for us to lose lose our faith, to lose our grip upon you. When the enemy tries to draw us away from the things that give stability and security to our lives. Help us to center on you, on your son.